Well, at the age of 15, Scott Beck came home from high school one day and he took a recurve bow and he put it in his dad, Ken's hands. And he said, here, dad, now we can go hunting together. And Ken, his father, took the bow and he looked at it and he said, thanks, son, for they'd never hunted together. And he said, but from that time on, we planned that we would hunt. You see, Scott in high school shop class had decided he was going to make a recurve bow for his project for the year. And he got so into it and he so loved it that he ended up making four. He made one for himself, one for his brother, Dan, one for his dad, Ken, and one for the shop class just to keep as a model for what other students could do. And it just kind of lit a fire in him. And so Ken, his father, told Scott and his brother Dan, let's go hunting. And there was only a couple of weeks before season opened, and that's what they did. And he said they had the best time that hunting season, going out several times. He said, never saw a deer, but it didn't matter. They had such a good time together that they went hunting, and they enjoyed just the time together. Well, they enjoyed it so much, they said, we're going to do this again next year. And a couple of weeks before hunting season the next year, that's what they did. They made a plan, opening morning, they were going to take their bows and go back out into the woods. But just about a week before hunting season opened, Scott was tragically killed in a car accident. And he was left, or the family was left without him. And the day they came home from the funeral... Ken, the father, looked at the bows hanging in the room and said to his oldest son, Dan, he said, Dan, do you think we'll ever hunt again? And Dan just dropped his head and he said, maybe someday, maybe someday. And Ken went on to tell me, we did hunt again. We hunted again every year. And he said, we hunted more than you could imagine because every time we hunted, I remember the memory of my son. And every time I was in the woods, I would recollect the fondness and the love that I had for him. And Dan and I grew very close together as we spent time in the woods with the bows that Scott had made for us. You see, Ken Beck grew up in Iowa. But early on, when he got out of high school, he wanted to move to Colorado and farm and pursue this dream that he had. But about a year into his time in Colorado, a devastating hailstorm wiped his whole crop out to the extent that he lost his farm. And so he had to leave and he moved back to Missouri, a state he had never spent any time in, but he'd heard a lot about it and how good it was to farm there. And so he moved back to southwest Missouri and bought a small farm that he had the opportunity to buy. But within about a year and a half, disease had run through all of his cattle and he lost that farm as well. And he said, you know, I kind of took a hint at that point. Farming may not be for me. So he began to go into business And over the next several years, Ken became very successful at business, but that success never really satisfied his longing and his desire. It was actually that time while in Missouri that Scott, his son, brought that bow home to him. And so, though he had several interests in business, when the opportunity came available to buy this small recurve bow company in Highlandville, Missouri, He sold all of his other interests and he bought the recurve bow business called Black Widow Bow Company. You see, this was in the early 1980s. 
And for about the last 10 years, the recurve bow industry had been on hard times. Black Widow was a company started by the Wilson brothers out of Springfield. And they had had it for over 30 years, making some of the best recurve bows that they could make. But this new toy had hit the market called a compound bow. And it put a real dent in the recurve bow market. The market had fallen off over 80% for them. And the Wilson brothers just wanted out. But for some reason, Ken said, knowing how great a risk it was, he said, I'd already failed at two farms. What's one more if this failed too? He sold all he had and he invested in this small company. And from the early 80s, he began to work and to build this small company. And upon his selling it a number of years later, he had rebuilt the Black Widow Bow Company to one of the premier recurve and long curve bow companies in the entire world. Shipping and selling out of Nixon, Missouri, high quality, high craftsmanship, recurve and longbows around the world. Now you might be asking yourself this morning, why in the world would I tell you this story? Let me tell you why I tell you this story. Because the day I walked in to buy some more arrows for my recurve bow, because I learned with the first six that I purchased that I didn't know how to shoot a recurve bow. And some of them are still hidden on the back 40 of this property. As I'm purchasing at the counter and I'm introduced to this man sitting here, I didn't know who he was. Hello, my name's Lane. He begins to recount this story to me. And at the end of the story, he simply says this, you know, I think the reason that I sold everything that I had invested in business and bought that struggling recurve bow industry was because my son lit a spark, a passion in me. And building bows was a way for me to live in that love for the rest of my life. Man, I walked in to buy arrows. I walked out a mess. I mean, I was, I was on the verge of crying. You can't do that in a bow shop. You know, I'm like, oh yeah, that's great, I gotta go. I want to ask you a question this morning. What's moving your life? What's moving your life? We're in a series entitled Compelled. And this series is all about us as a church learning what it means to live as we've been loved by God. The redeeming love of God is the greatest love in all of history, in all of humanity. And we as Christians are the most loved people of all. Not that there aren't other forms of love in the world, but because the love in which we live is so powerful, it gives to us a life that transcends this earth. But it does begin on this earth. And the question I want to pose to us today is, what kind of love is moving you? You see, Christians are compelled by God's love. And that love compels us to live sent. And last week, I started by using this word sent as an acronym for four postures by which we live our life to live in this compelling love of God that has redeemed us. And the first week we talked about that first posture was surrender. 
That, that when we are captivated by God's love so that it takes hold of us, we surrender all of our life to walk with Jesus and to live in God's will. Well, today I want us to look at the second posture, and it is this, that we expend our life. Christians live compelled by God's love to expend their life for Jesus so God is glorified above others. Once we surrender to God's will, we begin to walk in his word to live, expending our life for his glory. Let me give you a verse, a verse from Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, that kind of culminates this message as we begin it. It says this, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Friends, I want to talk to you today about what it means to live, to expend your life for God's glory, to be so captured by a love, to be so filled by God's love that you would expend your life for his glory. I want to begin in Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 29. While you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background. This verse, this part of Jeremiah is written to a group of, Israel, of Israelites that are living in Babylon. They're in the period of the exile. They're called exiles. The Babylonians have conquered Jerusalem. And as a political and military strategy, instead of destroying all the people, the Babylonians, who though were very cruel, had learned that it was actually economically beneficial for them to not kill all of their enemies. And so they would take them and they would disperse them to different parts of the Babylonian kingdom. And there they would let them live and work and earn a living. And because they knew that their economy grew as those people would work and labor to build and strengthen the economy. And so when we come to Jeremiah 29, we are, we are seeing a letter that Jeremiah has written to the Israelites who are living in Babylonian, who are living in Babylonian exile. And here's what he says to them. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 4. Verse 1 tells us that it was the letter from Jeremiah to the exiles. And verse 4 tells us what he said, the beginning of what he said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat from them. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, the obeying of his word today. What made Babylon a foreign city, a foreign place to them? Well, what makes any place foreign to us? It's different from home, right? It was a different land. Crops grew differently there. Different crops grew. 
Different crops mean different food. Different foods taste different. They don't comfort us in the same way, right? The climate was different. It got cold at different times. It got hot or hotter at different times. The people were different, very different. Those people aren't like me, right? Everything about their their customs and their celebrations were different. I mean, there wasn't anything. Their language was a huge barrier. How were we supposed to communicate? And in the midst of all of this, the people looked at all that was going on around them and their situation, and they just wanted to go home to Jerusalem, which was the center of the land that God had given to their people. But they got cast out of the land. God used the Babylonians to conquer them and to disperse them because they had taken God's blessing for granted and they had used it against God, turning it into God instead of receiving it as a blessing from God. And here's what God tells them. You are where you are because I've sent you there. Stop listening to those people who are tickling your ears and only telling you what you want to hear and saying what you will listen to. Rather, listen to me. And this is what he says. It's not time for you to return. It's not time for you to go back. He says it twice. He says it in verse 4 and he says it again in verse 7. I had sent you there. And what God's telling the Israelites to in that day was this. I have a different plan. That you are actually where you are because I have placed you there. And while I have a different plan from what you've understood, it is such that I have not abandoned you. I have not forgotten you. I have purposed you where you are for the reason that I have put you there. You see, friends, God had a divine purpose for leaving the Israelites in Babylon. And what Jeremiah is trying to do is he's reorienting their thinking about their lives. God, this can't be your will. Everything around us is going bad. God, if I were living in your will, I wouldn't have as many problems. God, if I were really in your will, I wouldn't be surrounded by all these kinds of people. The food would be better. The climate would be more tolerable. You you can imagine the excuses that they created. But what Jeremiah does is he redirects him to stop focusing on the discomfort of their situation and to focus on the purpose of God for placing them there. And that's what he's saying to them here. He begins by telling them, God put you there and friends of all the truths that can be the hardest to accept when we see the discomfort and the problems of our life and the situations or circumstances of our life that seem to be most out of whack to hear God say to us you are where I have you for a reason can be a very difficult pill to swallow And that's what he's telling them. Your discomfort is ordained by God. He's not telling them that he won't use them. He's actually telling them quite the opposite. You see, instead of promising them comfort as the false prophets were doing, right? Oh, hey, listen, you're going to get to go home and God's told me to tell you that. Let's take up an offering. That's kind of how that works, right? Feed one, but then they didn't. 
What does Jeremiah say to him? Get comfortable in an uncomfortable place. Learn to live where it's inconvenient and not like what you're accustomed to. You see, he's telling him, put down roots, build your family, multiply that family in the land. And if that's not bad enough, he tells them, seek the welfare of the city. In all of your doing, in all of your building, in all of your living, and in all of your praying. So here's what he says to him: In every way that you live, seek the good of the city in which you live. But not only in the way you live, in all of your worship, seek the good of the city. In other words, pray that these people who do not know me would come to know my blessing and want to know who the God of that blessing is. That's what Jeremiah is telling them that God would do through them for the city in order to provide for them. And as they labored and prayed for the welfare of the city, their own welfare would be found in the welfare of that city. I want us to look at two principles today that guide Christians to expend their lives in the world. And this is the first one I want us to look at. It's what I call the principle of purpose. The principle of purpose that Christians glorify God by blessing others to demonstrate the shalom of God on our life because Jesus is in our life. This is the principle of God's purpose for our life. There's a key phrase in these verses that is helpful for us to understand not only what Jeremiah was saying to the Israelites in that day, but what God's word teaches for us today. And it's simply this in verse 7, when it says, seek the welfare of the city. That Hebrew word for welfare, if you read it in the New International Version, your version will say, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. That Hebrew word is shalom. Shalom. And shalom was a critical word for the Israelites. As a matter of fact, this was so central to their understanding of their relationship with God that shalom was the evident presence of God upon their life because of the way he was blessing their life. And one of the reasons they were so uncomfortable in a foreign place was they felt like that God's shalom couldn't be on their life in that place. But what God is telling them is that if you will obey me and walk with me in the city in which I put you, you'll know my shalom there just like you can anywhere else, that my shalom is not limited to only a certain city. And you see, that shalom is a comprehensive blessing on all of life. It includes prosperity and wealth. It includes health and well-being. It includes influence and favor and happiness and joy. And here's what we need to understand, that shalom doesn't only include these things in the way that we understand them, but rather in the way that God bestows them upon his people. You know, we, we live in a day and time when gospel perversions aren't overtly wicked. Rather, they're subversively Christian. Do you understand that? In other words, instead of an outright attack on Christianity, they fly under the radar as Christianity. 
And they tell us that only the things that God can do for us are the reason that we should have anything to do with God to begin with. And there are the same kinds of false prophets in our day as there were in Jeremiah's day. And God said this, your life and your shalom will not be determined by your circumstances, by the situations that surround you. It will be determined by the one who fills you. And that's why you are where you are. And that's why I'm calling you to live the way I'm calling you to live. You see, shalom brings an earthly recognition of a divine reality upon our life. That God is with us. And Christians display the glory of God when we labor and when we pray for his reigning peace to be prevalent and recognized in the city just as it is dwelling within us. You see, friends, I don't think this is any easier of a concept for Christians to embrace today than it was for the Israelites to embrace in that day. As a matter of fact, this is the first time in all of the, the only time in the Old Testament where they are commanded to pray for their enemies and to labor for their enemies' good. Do you hear a hint of one who would come that would ultimately make that completely possible. We should. We should understand God's purpose and God's plan in what he gives us to do through his will. You see, Christians live distinctly oriented to Jesus that we might testify to the blessing of his lordship in our life to be a blessing in this world. And we, we don't wear Christ as bling. We, we live a life that is inhabited by him so we can be a blessing to others and they can see the one who has blessed us. This is otherworldly, friends. The world does not teach you to pray for your enemies. The world does not teach you to labor for the good of your enemies and those who are your haters. But the gospel empowers us to not fear them and not only not fear them, but to labor for their good as well. Because it will be in the shalom of God that people will see the shalom and want to know the God who gives it. You see, that's the principle of purpose. That God has placed you where you are for his purpose and for his plan. God wanted the exiles to trust the same thing that he wants you and I to trust today. He is never far away from you. That he knows where you are. He understands your needs. He understands your wants. He understands your struggles. He understands the secret issues of your heart. He understands your pleasures and your joys. And friends, he cares more about all of those than we do ourselves. But hear me, Christian. Though God may not forever leave you there, where you are, Today is where God has put you for his divine purpose. And until we come to the point where we surrender our lives to him, to walk under the lordship of Jesus Christ 
in the will of God for our lives. We will never surrender in such a way that we're able to expend our life fully for God. Rather, we'll throw some tokens at him to try and satisfy him while we're spending our life trying to find what we want everywhere else. And what God is saying is this, your bank account's not big enough to spend that much to find joy and satisfaction. Your strength, your well-being, your good doing, your achievements, your abilities, you can spend them all, but you will never find what you're looking for. But if you surrender to me, I'll give you that and more. And you can live in such a way that you expend all of your life for my glory because you'll learn your source is unending. I want to ask you something this morning. Are you living from this conviction that where you are, that who you are, that the people that are around you, the place that God has put you, that it may be your job, it may be a, a certain friendship or relationship or situation or circumstance. Do you understand that God has placed you there for a divine purpose and he wants to work through your life in order to work in your life? That's what he's saying to us. If you're not living with this deep, conviction of being able to expend your life for God's glory, you will live in the paralysis of another love or of another desire or passion. Friends, hear me. You are living for that which you love most. And when we look at our lives, if we really want to know the truth, we have to look at that for which we're living our life for to see that which we love most. Are you expending your life for God's glory where God has put you? Christians live compelled by God's love to expend their life for Jesus so God is glorified above others, consumed with a love in such a way that we can accept and receive as God's divine blessing where we are in such a way to live for him completely in every way. So, if God has a plan, how then does he want to carry that plan out in our life? Well, I want to take you then to the second principle. If the first principle is the principle of God's divine purpose for our life, the second principle is what I call the principle of practice. And it's just simply this, that Christians live as salt and light to glorify God before people. You see, when we move to the New Testament, Jesus picks up this same fundamental foundational teaching of, of shalom and laboring for the welfare of the city and finding our own welfare in it. And he began with an understanding of why when he explained the how of the practical application to his followers. In Matthew chapter 5, he's preaching what we commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And he comes to a section that we've labeled the Beatitudes. 
He's granting to us the attitudes that we should be in the world as Christians. In other words, he's doing a world reorientation of our thinking and our understanding by taking the values of this world and contrasting them against the values of his kingdom and what life in his kingdom is all about. And he's showing us how life in his kingdom and living by the values of the kingdom of God, even in this world, are more glorious and more hopeful to us than living out worldly values and only achieving worldly glory that always perishes and fades. And that's where he takes us. And so this second principle applies the purpose in this way. It talks about what you do. With your life, it talks about how it is you do it, the spirit in which you do it. And he says, apply those in all that you do. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5 if you've not turned there yet. I want to read verses 13 to 16 for us. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You you see, Jesus says this, that people who live in God's redeeming love, they operate by a divine world-transcending set of values that translate into a life-altering, real glory-producing practices. This is how we live the divine reality of heaven in the here and now of our lives. And he uses two common images, salt and light. The first one, he says this, you are the salt of the earth. Now, Now, we know the the, the benefits or the characteristics of salt, they, 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 it flavors or seasons, it preserves, in this day and time, it was a, an essential preserving element, but it also medicates. It has properties that are antibacterial. If you didn't know this, I want to encourage you when you go home today that if you have an ulcer in your mouth, just put some salt on it. It will smooth it right out and soothe it. And that soothing will come about 30 seconds after your body flouncing, eye-watering, sometimes curse-inducing moment occurs. But after that, it makes it numb. For those of you who didn't know, it had medicating value. Salt of the earth. And when he says salt of the earth, he's telling us this, that we live this way in the created order. Not just on the planet that we live in, but rather in the created natural world in which we live. You see, Christians relate to all things in this world, to other people, to creation, to animals, to all that is, our belongings and everything, with a focus on God's eternal redemption. Some things in this world we enjoy naturally, right? Like our food. There's a reason we say grace before our meals and pray because we give thanks to God because even in the minute everyday details of life, as Christians, we recognize it is a provision from God's hand no matter who put it on the table. There's also that as salt of the earth, we operate in this natural world to abstain from things because they hold no redeeming value for us. 
And, and, and the Bible doesn't give a specific comprehensive list of all of these things, though it gives some. But it does tell us that, that the Bible makes us wise so that we can walk in a manner that is worthy of the name of Christ. It also tells us as salt of the earth that there's things we hold to or things that we participate in in a preserving manner that demonstrates our distinction. I'll tell you one thing that we do, or I'll even give you two quick ones. Money and marriage are two of the most critical ones in our day and time. If you steward your life your time, your treasure, and your talent, according to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it will not make sense to the world in so many parameters. But it will testify to them that there is a Lord greater than the dollar. If you live your marriage under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, so much of it will not make sense. But I'll tell you this. It will testify to the goodness of Christ and his redeeming power when two broken people covenant together before him. You see, we live as salt of the earth, friends. And in all matters, Christians live wisely according to God's eternal counsel from his word that we might walk in a manner that is worthy of his name and not defaming of it. That's what it means to live as salt of the earth. There is nothing in this world that adds value to life, that is more attractive to people, that is more appetizing or appealing like the redeeming power of the gospel when it is applied to all of life against the dull bore that is produced by idolatry, by immorality, and by addiction. Listen, you apply the gospel to your life and I can't quite honestly tell you where God will take you and how he can use you but I'll tell you this eternity and glory are the limits of how he'll use you you engage in idolatry immorality and and addictions and I can tell you where you're going to end up every time I've seen it over and over and over again it is not manageable and the more you try to manage it the more it rules you But when we apply the gospel to life and we live in the lordship of Jesus Christ, we bear a testimony that just simply holds a power that is is not only savoring for life, but it is preserving in life. And it is in every way healing of the wounds of this life in a way that the world can't make sense of, but God gets glory from. That's what it means for us to live as the salt of the earth. And I ask you, is your life pointing others to Jesus by flavoring it to show that he is greater, by savoring and preserving to hold out hope in those dark times of life and those hard situations of life? Is your life an agent of medicating the world against the, the wounds and even the diseases of this world to say you know what that which takes our life doesn't have the last word on who we are Jesus says don't fear the one who can take the body but fear the one who can take the soul this world is not our home It doesn't hold our ultimate hope. And until we live as the salt of the earth, the world will never see that there is a greater life that is held for them that cannot be shaken because of what's going on around them. The second image that he grants to us is the image of light. Let me say one more thing. 
Because Jesus says this, what if saltiness loses its saltiness? You know that's an impossibility. That salt can't lose its primary characteristic. And that's Jesus' point. That's his point. He says this, that righteous living by faith and obedience to King Jesus flavors, preserves, and heals in this world as it spreads the gospel. That's what he wants us to see as the salt of the earth. The second image he uses, however many fingers I'm holding up, we're on two. That Christians live as the light of the world. Christians live as light of the world. And your light, too, has properties that define it in the way that it benefits us. It gives us orientation, right? You turn the light on when you get out of bed so you don't stump your little toe on the corner of the bed. You see it, you avoid it. You don't turn the light on, you don't see it, you don't avoid it. And bad things happen, right? You break your little toe or whatever the case may be. It orients, it directs us. The psalmist tells us, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It gives direction, but it also provides security for us in the way that it hymns us in, the word says. But there's another property, for light is an image of goodness and of righteousness opposed to the darkness of this world. And what Jesus is teaching is encompassing all of these meanings because what he's saying is you're not only the salt of the earth in the natural order, but you're the light of the world. And of the world talks to us about this sphere of influence and this sphere of existence in which we live among others. You see, Christians are a force for good and for righteousness by the guiding and securing work of living living in God's living word. That's what the psalmist is telling us. The light in which we walk casts light for others. I don't know if you've ever been hiking and gotten lost or ended up in the woods after dark, but if you're like me and you don't have a flashlight, you're going to stick close to somebody that does, right? Because you can walk by the light that they're casting. And that's what Christians do when we live as the light of the world. When we live by faith and obedience to Jesus, we display the light by which we walk in this life and that light is his word for us it doesn't mean that every situation or surrounding of our life is necessarily or distinctively good but it does mean that we're not driven by those situations we're not driven by our surroundings rather we are compelled by a love that is within us and when situations get hard when circumstances get dark we're not destroyed we're not paralyzed and we're not crushed why because the guiding light of God's word is living within us And it's greater than everything that is around us. Living by faith in obedience to God's word gives us stability. It gives us certainty and it gives a calming peace to life at all times and in all situations. And that casts light for others to see. Friends, Christians live compelled by God's love to expend their life for Jesus so God is glorified before others. This is the principle of purpose and it is the principle of how we practice God's purpose for our life. And I want to return now as we begin to conclude to the first question I ask you, what is compelling your life? What's moving you? Why are you getting up in the morning and going about your day, and going about the things of your life? Are you expending your life for God's glory? Are you expending your life for some other glory? For friends, that which you expend your life for reveals that which your life is compelled 
by. I want to conclude with a testimony from our church. It's an email that I received last week. And it's an email from a member of our church wanting to be intentional as a faithful witness as work. Here's what they say. God is unsettling my heart to a point I feel I must move forward. I feel almost as if he is calling me to a mission field, a local one. I'm beginning to believe he is calling me to use my business as a ministry. Ding! Nail hit on the head. That's it. That's what it means to expend your life for glory. LifePoint is not uh, uh, about, about breeding a lot of good little church attenders. It's not about creating a lot of good little church consumers, but we are a city of light set on a hill for all to see to bless the city. We are a city on a hill. We are compelled by an all-consuming love. And my question to each of us today is what love is compelling you? When Christ's love compels, you will expend your life for the glory of God to live for his purpose and to practice that life in his ways. Let's pray.